listening to Making Data Simple, where we make the world of data effortless, relevant, and yes, even fun. Hey listeners, welcome to Making Data Simple. I've got a little bit of a cold today. This is Al Martin speaking. Maybe it's allergies, I don't know. I thought, the cool thing is I thought I was going to have an announcer voice, but I, I just think it sounds easily at this at this point. So bear with me. But uh, this is the podcast where we talk about making data accessible, how it drives, or is the foundation to the ladder to AI, and anything else, frankly, that we, we find interesting. Uh, we meet experts across the industry, teach us about technology, and teach us about leadership. Again, I'm Al Martin. I lead hybrid data management at I, IBM. Today, I have an esteemed guest, Laura Ellis, who is an analytics architect, yes, at IBM Cloud here. And what we're going to talk about today is building a data democracy and whatever else comes up for that matter. But I can tell you, if you go out there, and, and I would encourage all the listeners to do so, you can go out to littlemissdata.com, uh, Twitter, Little Miss Data, Instagram, Little Miss Data, and then she breaks the mold on uh, <laughs> LinkedIn with Laura Grace Ellis, but um, I guess I should, should I refer to you, Laura, as Little Miss Data? I, I, help me out here. Uh, no, you can call me by my name, Laura Ellis. Um, I just kind of like the Little Miss Data persona. I needed a fun Twitter name, and then it grew from there. I think it, it's fabulous. How are you? Thank you for joining us today. I greatly appreciate it. I tried to do the best lead up as possible. See? <laughs> Little Miss Data. Very good. So, Go ahead and let me let me shut up for a second. Please introduce yourself. Tell us about your role at IBM, and then we'll we'll kick this off. Okay, great. Um, so I am Laura Ellis, aka Little Miss Data, um, and I am a hardcore data geek and data enthusiast. I get very passionate and excited when I talk about it. And uh, for my job, I'm an analytics architect at IBM Cloud, which I also love. It's a very fun role. Because I get to explore a wide variety of the business through an analytics lens. So I get to have kind of a different day every day, um, looking at everything from data feeds and flows to tooling, selection, management, and maintenance, analysis, doing, and reviewing, and user enablement and documentation. So it's like the spectrum. Nice. Where are you located, if I could ask? I'm in Austin, Texas. You know, so you're kind of a testament to, my, my wife would say, are there other data geeks out there like you? And I, I have to say, I think you might be a data geek just like me because I was looking on your littlemissdata.com. You've got some good articles. Do you try to blog every month or every week, every other week? I, I try to blog every few weeks. I try. Um, I usually have about three or four blogs on the go, actually half done, and then a list, and the list grows. But it's basically when I think I see something cool or something I want to explore, or show people about, or I'm finishing a project people might be interested in, I start writing it down and try to, every few weeks, get something out the door. This is how I know that I think you are a data geek, which there's that's something to be very proud of as far as I'm concerned. Because uh, as I was looking at some of the blogs, I mean, they're, they're well-written, uh, and they're very passionate about whatever, whether it's analytics, uh, data insights that you have. I thought they were very well done. I mean, I like the one you did on NASA, by example. Um, you may have to talk to us at the end of that uh, about your, your work that you did with NASA. It sounded like you, you got involved with something, and then it, you know, I won't spoil it for the, <laughs> but I'll let you talk to it at the end maybe if you wouldn't mind. Perfect. So data democratization. I was looking at the, the 
the definition, you know, maybe boring at the high level, but let me see if I give it a go. And I'm going to take this from Margaret Rouse. I think I pronounced her name right. And then I'm going to let you kind of tell us what data democratization is. So data democratization is the ability for information in a digital format to be accessible to the average end user. The goal of data democratization is to allow non-specialists to be able to gather and analyze data without requiring outside help. So there's the definition. So you're the expert. What is data democracy versus, I guess, data dictatorship? And why is it important to you? Awesome. Okay, so that's a great, a very great quote on data democracy. And I think the key points are easily accessible, right? So we need data to be easily accessible to the subject matter experts that are not data scientists, data specialists, in a way that is very easy for them to access and analyze to get the information that they need. So it's important to me because information is power, right? And understanding your data today is now understanding your business. And the more people that understand their business, the better we'll do as a company. And so as a data owner myself, it is my responsibility to make sure that we are breaking down any barriers to accessing that data um, so that we can help distribute that power and do better. So the cool thing for you and I is every business is a data company today. Uh, how do you make data accessible in your mind to the average user or subject matter expert alike? Right. So how do we make it? So it is tricky with technical and cultural considerations that need to happen. I think the key thing is really putting yourself in the, the user, which in our case is the subject matter expert who's not a data scientist, putting ourselves in their shoes and trying to see if, if we are providing them a reasonable path uh, for getting access and being able to analyze the data. So we need to think about accessibility, right? So while theoretically everything may be accessible to the users who are supposed to have access to the data, the reality is it might not be reasonable to have them jump through 30 hoops and get, you know, fifth line manager approval to have access to the data. Um, we need to think about the where, right? So we give them access, but what do we expect? How do we expect them to engage with the data? It may not be reasonable to just give um, maybe a salesperson a warehouse connection and say have at it, or it may not be smart to give them a massive Excel file and expect them to have their own data flow and everybody has a different copy. And then we need to have a supportive environment as well. So we're helping these people all the way through, successes and failures. So I look at it, I mean, you can start with repositories, which could be analytical or transactional in nature. Go to a data lake, that's another possibility. Then you can get into structured, unstructured data. Hadoop comes in, federate data. Or what I like right now is, is where, you know, some projects that I'm specifically working on is data virtualization, where essentially leave the data wherever it may be, so think end of ETL, end of essentially extract, transform, load, end of uh, data movement, and and really just leave the data where it is, bring, bring the result set back through, we're de developing some technology right now, so we do it through a constellation. So it's actually extremely fast by using the different nodes out there to work with one another. But enough about me, I mean, that, but that's an interesting concept. That's the reason I mentioned all that. If I unpack that statement, where do you think companies are really lacking? Right. I think that probably previously not everybody was on board, but in the past sort of three to five years, I think that everybody's sort of onboarded to the idea. Uh, but there, 
but they're maybe not taking their user into consideration. Or you can you can set up the whole process, but you have to look at things in an end-to-end -end picture. You want a specialist who's not a data specialist, right? They're a business specialist, an industry specialist, um, maybe a specialist on a particular client. You want them to engage and interact with the data. You might be inadvertently setting up both technical and cultural hurdles for them along the way. So you really have to think of the end-to-end -end picture and uh, how that looks for their journey. So all good. So that implies that the companies that you're working with are are not doing. Could you expand more about where you think they're just struggling and where companies like IBM or other data uh, data providers can help more? Yeah. So I think so. You know, kind of breaking it back down to the points that I had made previously. Theoretically, everyone can get access to the data that they need, right? But I was recently talking with a government agency, and they spend eighty. Their data scientists spend eighty percent of their time getting access to the data, jumping through the hoops. Right? They get the access, so it's quote unquote accessible, but it's not actually accessible in that user journey. That's not that person's full time job is getting access to the data, right? And then next is when you say, okay, yes, they can have access to the data. You have to make sure that it's in a tool that they can use without, again, them having to become a, a data scientist, right? So you have to think practically about that area and then have the support for them as well. So redundant data, different tools in repositories they can no longer get to. They may not be accessible. It may be, again, back to unstructured. Some of it's structured. Uh, some of it now is in data lakes, where other of it's in repositories. Sometimes it's transactional in nature. Sometimes it's analytical. So, if if you are, do you work with clients on a regular basis? And if you do work with clients, or instruct clients, or educate clients, you know how do you how do you turn that 80-20 rule, which to your point is a real problem. I mean, it's a huge problem right now. I, I'm glad you you mentioned it. It is. You know, there's a lot of different studies out there that talk to, you know, these data scientists. You're paying them to uh, to science and, and statistics around the data to provide answers and insights that you haven't even thought of, yet they're spending 80% of their time on data access. How do you swap that? How do you get from 80 to 20 to 20 to 80, or maybe okay. less than 20? Yeah. So, Al, I don't actually work with clients too much. This is really just from being out in the industry and participating in events and meeting all sorts of people because I'm a data nerd and I love to be around my people, right? Um, but I live the dream of the internal uh, data democracy mission. And we're lucky within IBM Cloud, and I would imagine it's most uh, units within IBM, uh, that our, our entire leadership buys into it. So it kind of has to start with your philosophy that we don't accept this anymore, right? We don't accept um, people putting up sort of artificial barriers to access for data. And whether they are like actually having to fill out a form or just a technical hurdle, that's, it's not fair to expect your non-specialist to be able to access this. And um, so it starts with the philosophy and it continues with a systematic approach to be able to ensure that their user journey to accessing the data is fair. And we do actually have four sort of cornerstones that we live by within IBM Cloud. Um, we say simple tools, right? So the tooling should be simple enough that a user can log in, access the data without having to do sort of like a four-week prep course. It's somewhat intuitive enough with some extra enablement and training. Simple data, right? So you can know how to use the tools, whether it's a data application 
or whether it's something more advanced like Python and R, you know, you can have all of the tools, tool skills in the world. Um, but you need to have simple data. Because we all see these warehouses where there might be tens of thousands of tables. And essentially in a warehouse schema, we've created this whole own world of data objects and their relationships, right? And it can be quite difficult to onboard into that, to try to understand this world that has been set up within a data schema, for example. So we try to make simple data. So a certain set of objects that, and interactions that can scale pretty easily without the user having to orient themselves to new objects. Third, quality and enablement. So if you don't have quality data, you don't have anything, right? It has to be quality and we have to be communicating the quality all of the time. Enablement, we have to be doing that. Um, every new data feature has to go out with the full bells and whistles of enablement, and we need to be helping people. Finally, supportive environments, that's number four. Um, so you're asking these, you are asking these subject matter experts to go out of their comfort zone to try something new. You need to be there to support them. Help them, but also, um, you know, so they get something wrong. That's fine. We all do. Data scientists do. Everybody gets something a little bit wrong. So you have to have that supportive culture as well that you're not weaponizing data as you said, Al. So that's great. So we like lists here. So you talk to the four corner, cornerstones of data democracy. Let me see if I get this right, just to restate it for the audience. One, simple tools. Two, simple data. Three, quality and enablement. And four, a supportive environment. Did I get it? You got it, 100. You got it. So could, I would like a little bit more detail, if you could, on each one. I, I'm not looking at going too far down, but simple tools. Let, let me, let's start there. I mean, when you say simple tools, what does that mean to the average end user? Right. So simple tools means, again, kind of getting back to this idea of being reasonable about where your subject matter experts should be expected to engage with the data. So that could, it is going to depend on your subject matter expert, but we on IBM Cloud employ a number of data applications, which are sort of a simplified interface for the user to be able to um, engage with the data. Um, so sort of we're thinking from a subject matter expert perspective, drag and drop style applications, or um, giving bridging the gap for them and giving them more advanced applications, but in a friendly setting like like a collaborative Watson Studio environment where the data is already connected and they can interact with their peers. So that's kind of, I mean, appropriate simple tools depending on the audience and kind of at a range of levels. All right, all right. So if, if I name a simple tool, essentially Watson Studio, by example, mm -hmm. but a drag and drop style application type tool, good, good user interface, got it. Simple data. Um, that's really up my alley since making data simple here. You mentioned Python R. What's your definition of simple data again? I know you referred to some of these, but I want to make sure they're very clear to the, uh, the, the listener. Right. Okay. Simple data. This is a big, big one for me because if we think about the sort of traditional data warehouse, you can go in and, you know, being a data scientist, right? Somebody says to you, oh, you can have access to the data. Uh, you get the login info, you connect to the warehouse, and you could be very well inundated with thousands of tables, right? Um, all of these various uh, objects and their relationships modeled out through thousands of tables. So now you have all the skills and the tools that you need 
but you don't understand the data you should be interacting with because it's so complexly laid out. So what we try to do is keep it very simple. So introduce only, you know, a, introduce as minimal amount of objects as you can. And we try to represent a lot of everything else through kind of an event-driven approach um, so that we can scale pretty easily with the data that we expose to our users and they can scale their understanding of our data schema pretty easily. When you say objects, what do you mean by objects, just to be clear? Right, so I mean objects like users, accounts, for example, and then events are sort of like things they did. So you can, you can really relate it to a handful of objects and then a handful of actions instead of like, for example, users, accounts, cars, a bill, um, a, a subscription, a relationship. It, when you have too many objects and too many tables, and I know it's a very normalized warehouse format, um, but it is harder for the user to onboard in this type of setting. Are most of what you're talking about in more of a data lake or a warehouse in this context? I mean, which is fine. I mean, we support those two. Um, you know, I, I reference federation and virtualization. And the only reason I mentioned that earlier is because a lot of clients don't want to move their data. Now we're, we're starting to get to the age of, look, I've, I've created data warehouses or data lakes. Now I've got four data lakes and I've got, you know, still a ton of repositories. So the virtualization is key. But in terms of the context that you're at right now, which is perfectly fine, are we really talking a traditional data warehouse or a data lake in nature? Yeah, so just the way, and, and again, um, how people implement it, this is more of a philosophy, but in terms of our exact implementation, uh, so what we have is a real-time event streaming system. We have millions and millions of events that go through every day and week, and they get sent to a variety of data applications through our system, as well as a traditional warehouse. Um, and so that's kind of the recipe we've found that works for us. Um, but really, it, it is sort of like a whatever works for you and your subject matter expert approach. Does that make sense? That, that, makes, that makes perfect sense. And, and uh, the one thing that I can't help but think of in, in, my, in my world is a product that we call Event Store that is driven on events, but just you know essentially streaming of massive uh, amounts of, of of data. But look, I'll I'll, I'll leave that for another time. I, I don't want to be advertising here. <laughs> I can't help but do it because I'm proud of that. But it seemed like it'd be great in this environment. Quality and enablement. What does quality mean to you? One more time. So quality means having good data, right? Um, so there are so many things to patch into what is good data. Um, I think it means the data you have, make sure that your data feeds are solid. Make sure the data is coming in as expected. Um, make sure that you have test cases that are running that are testing for uh, missing data, testing for uh, poorly formed data, and so on. Um, and then further to that, don't let in bad data either, right? So even if you don't consider it core and you're just sort of bringing it in as a favor, don't, don't do that. It confuses the user. And I think another part of it that's actually very important is communicating your understanding of the quality of your data system to your user base. Um, because it can be very easy for people to think like, oh, the data's bad. Um, and I think it's, when I try to, when people say, how do I know the data's quality? My first answer is usually look at the data steward and understand 
and try to get their understanding of the quality of the data. Like, how much testing do they have in place? How much do they care about the data set? How much are they communicating their quality standards? Uh, I think that's a really good indication. So communication is a key factor around quality as well. Very good. Much much better in terms of, uh, or at least good, better for me in terms of characterizing what, what your view on the quality is. Thank you so much. Supportive environment. Right. Supportive environment. So this is, this is a biggie, right? So we are asking our non-data scientists, right? So they don't necessarily have all of the technical skills, but the subject matter experts, they're the ones that are going to be able to look at the data and look at these hypotheses we think we have and kind of tell us probably some more practical understanding of them because of their deep experience in the area. We're asking them to step out of their comfort zone and try a new skill. And sometimes people use information as a weapon, so we need to make them feel comfortable about trying this new thing. And so by supportive environment, I mean if they make sure that you've got kind of like systems in place to help them get started, if they need help along the way, help them. And also, if something goes wrong, just celebrate that they tried. Celebrate the failure. Something was learned always out of people trying this. So, you know, just make sure that you have a supportive culture um, that's going to encourage people to take on this new role. Very good. I think what you just described, in my mind, data democracy is essentially what I would, I mean, it's really a, a key to the ladder to AI, where you start off with data, the governance, I think that applies to the quality enablement you talked about. Then you move into analytics, machine learning, and get to, to the AI. And by the way, uh, you know, one thing that we find as we're working with clients, it's hard to get started in these kind of uh, scenarios. I mean, how do you, how do you, what simple tools do you use? That's why I wanted to drill down on it. What simple, what, what is the definition of simple data, quality, et cetera? Uh, that's what we have is what's called a data first method where we work to engage with clients to help, you know, essentially draw up that, that plan that you're, you're kind of outlining. I, I had a question here, and honestly, I can't remember where I got it from. It's probably reading one of your, your blogs or not, and it talks about dashboards. I don't know, I mean, if you're a fan of dashboards, and I, I want to talk to the pros and cons of dashboards and, and how they can effectively be used. Awesome question. So, um, I do talk about the limits of dashboards, both in my blog and with anybody who will listen. Um, but I'm not a dashboard hater, not at all. I actually like dashboards. I think that they are a really awesome way to get everybody on the same page about the facts, right? The what. What was the revenue last quarter? Everybody knows they go to the dashboard, they look at it. Uh, what was the top selling product? Everybody knows it's in the dashboard. We're not recreating the wheel. We are all on the same page about the what. It's when you have the right people and you're asking the whys that we start to feel the limits of the dashboards. So for example, somebody asks, why did the revenue increase or decrease last quarter? Why is this the most popular product? And that's when we really start to feel the limits of a dashboard um, because what we need to answer those questions is to launch a data investigation that's led by a team of subject matter experts that really understand the space that can help interpret your findings in the data. And, and Al, I do have an analogy, if, if you're interested. Yeah, no, I love analogies, hit it. Okay, okay. Because it's hard to explain, right? Because dashboards feel like the holy grail. Um, so, looking at a dashboard is like flying over the ocean in a helicopter. 
looking down and saying the water's blue. Okay, great. That's a good observation. Nothing wrong, right? Um, yeah, so, I got that. So uh, let's say you get a new job and uh, you are now managing an entire ocean, right? So you are managing this body of water and you need to make sure that it's blue, okay? So, so you're very good at your job and you say, well, we need to set a proactive monitoring. We do not want to be surprised if this color changes. So you hire an aerial photographer and that aerial photographer every single week goes around, takes a snapshot of the water, comes back to you. You look, okay, same color blue, perfect. You know, week one, awesome. Week two, great. Week three, it's a different color. So now you need to ask why, why? Uh, so you ask your aerial photographer, right? They took the snapshot. So why is this this color? So their course of action is really to fly to lower altitude, take more pictures, um, and come back to you. And we now find it has never been a uniform shade of blue. It's always been different shades of blue, depending on the area that you were looking at. And to answer why those different areas are different shades of blue, we can't ask the aerial photographer to dive in and start trying to figure it out. That's not their, that's not, they are not a subject matter expert in water analysis. We need to bring in the real subject matter experts. We need to bring in people who are able to tell us um, how the temperature, the current, the wildlife, the flora, the depths, the spills in the area. We need to bring them in, enable them to analyze, get all the info they need out of the water analyze the data and come back to you with the findings of what may have happened. And this whole analogy is to say that uh, when we want to answer the hard whys, we need to do a data investigation and we need to bring in the subject matter experts and let them do their thing. So now why would ocean water be your example? You must have something in your, your history or your, your, your interests that, that, that give you that example, yes? No? Um, you know what? I wish I was that exciting. I think I just picked <laughs> something, uh, and I was trying to picture, you know, like what could be an example. I was thinking looking dashboards or like looking through a window in a house. I, I don't know. I just picked water. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. That's good too. You're you're uh, you're imaginative. That's good. So uh, you know another thing you talk about, and I'd like you to explain this because I want to make sure I fully understand it and the listeners as well is facilitated analysis and self-serve analysis in one of your blogs. So you talk about distinguishing between the two. First of all, could you tell us more about what those both definitions are, what do they mean, and then distinguish between both? Yeah, awesome. So uh, we had just sort of talked about, okay, so technically we should now be believing that we need a data investigation and the subject matter experts need to lead it. So let's think practically how that looks. Okay, they need to lead this investigation. So do you expect them to lead it in a facilitated way, meaning they're not actually doing the analysis themselves, but they're sort of dictating step-by-step step what needs to be done and a data analyst or data scientist is doing them for them? That's facilitated analysis. And then self-serve is they actually have access to the information that they need in an appropriate tool set, in a data set they can understand with support to be able to just get get their own answers themselves. And and when I think about both, and, and Al, I've been a facilitator in the past for many years where people 
would come to me and I'd help them with their problems. When I think about both, it kind of looks like this. Uh, subject matter expert comes to you, uh, wants, needs to investigate a problem, explains it to you, you both spend time doing that. Um, the analyst goes away, makes the first view, they meet up again, uh, it's either you know, right or it's wrong. <laughs> so if it's great, then likely you get the invitation to make another dashboard, uh, which dives in deeper, or if it's not, you have to revise, and so on and so on, spending time from both people's uh, schedules. And eventually what happens is at some point you hit a limit, right? Uh, the person who's asking, the subject matter expert, probably starts to feel bad <laughs> continuing to revise and and or the data analyst has to move on and when i think about when i do data investigations for just a small thing i will slice and dice it 20 to 50 different ways right why should i expect this uh, subject matter expert to be any different they only understand the problem space more than me and so we want to enable them to ask and answer questions to their heart's intent. And that's why I much prefer self-serve analysis. So what's up for you in the future? Where are you headed? Oh my goodness. Um, you know, I think as long as I'm working with data, solving big problems that are new to me, um, helping people and, you know, making an impact, I'm happy. I, I really don't have a grand plan other than keep doing the things I love keep being challenged. So I'll end with, you know, usually I say, hey, what, what are you reading today? And you're welcome to answer that. But uh, for the audience out there, I think the first thing you start with with this uh, podcast is to go out there and read what uh, uh, Little Miss Data has done out there on your, on your blogs because you've got a ton of blogs out there, all interesting data storytelling. I went out there right now as we were talking uh, happy holiday, holidays, data lovers. I mean, you do it all. Predictive analytics tutorial. Um, that's good, but but I'll still ask you, where do you go for your info? Um, so I get I get a lot of info from Twitter, actually. Funnily enough, it it feels like almost uh, overwhelming at times, <laughs> but people, I I kind of get my info from the public, right, from my people and just listening to what people are saying and going out there and exploring it. And that's, that's where I get my info. Uh, and then, Al, in terms of the books I'm reading, um, right now I'm actually working on a blog, one of the books I'm working on, about uh, data science books for kids. Uh, I have two young girls, three and five, and I want to read them data science books, um, but they're not super readily available, so I'm trying to kind of hack it together with some coding books and some math books. Um, so I ordered a bunch of them, and I'm trying to read them myself and trying to have the kids read them with me. And that's kind of what I'm working on right now. Nice. I have three girls, so together we have five girls that we could start a basketball team. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> a team of data scientists, let's say that. That's right. That's right. A team of data scientists. I like it. Well, Laura, thank you so much. I appreciate you being here. You've given us a lot of information. Uh, we'll get this out to the community ASAP. Um, again, much, much appreciated. Last word, I'll let you have it. Oh, my goodness. Uh, hey, 
thanks for having me on your show from someone who felt like a lonely data scientist for a while to now being invited to be on a podcast this is pretty amazing yeah well, all right well go see laura on littlemissdata.com little miss data on twitter on instagram and then laura grace ellis on linkedin uh, thank you again and for you listeners out there uh, please give us feedback on whatever forum that you're listening to this podcast let us know what we can do better and we'll meet and exceed that expectation. Thank you all. Talk to you next time. listening to the making data simple podcast where we make data fun be sure to visit ibmbigdatahub.com forward slash podcast to access the show notes and uncover even more great episodes remember the views expressed here are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily represent the views of ibm until next time over and out. <laughs>